Good evening. My name is Alfred Lemon, and I would like to welcome you to the second annual Bill Russell Lecture. We are pleased to have with us this evening the president of the Kemper and Leela Williams Foundation, which operates the historic New Orleans collection, Mrs. Mary Lou Christovich. We are also pleased. We are also pleased to have with us Mr. Russell's brother, Dr. William Wagner, who ventured down here from Kentucky. And we are always pleased that our friends from the Bunk Johnson Society in Sweden always manage to arrange their annual visit in conjunction with our lecture. And we also would like to welcome tonight our friends from England, Florida, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Kentucky. So thank you all, all for coming. The Bill Russell Lecture is designed to promote the use of the Russell Collection. It is available Tuesday through Saturday from 10 a.m. to 4.30 in this very reading room. It seeks to draw attention to topics that Mr. Russell himself had a particular interest in. One of those topics was drumming. And while we always associate Mr. Russell with the production of recordings, he did prepare a movie on the New Orleans drummer, Baby Dodds. Tonight's presenters are immensely qualified. Both are drummers and both work with Mr. Russell. Both have been long associated with some of the more important figures of jazz. Barry Martin's association with legendary performers goes back to his childhood days in England, and he was associated with the great dancer Nijinsky. He was his milkman. Later on, at the older age of 12, he brought a Louis Armstrong recording that captured his imagination, and by 14 was working as a musician and at 15 became a band leader. Five years later, he made the first of many trips to New Orleans where he took drum lessons from Josiah Frazier. He became the first white musician to join the Black Musicians Union in the United States, Local Union 496 in New Orleans. Barry then began to bring New Orleans artists on solo trips to Europe. Since 1973, he has regularly toured the great concert halls of Europe presenting New Orleans music. With more than 120 recordings to his credit, he maintains an active schedule. For example, he performed before an audience of 7,000 at a birthday tribute for Laurie Armstrong in Los Angeles, regularly appears on national television, and entertained President Mrs. Reagan at Ford's Theater in Washington. In his spare time, he writes on jazz history and conducts workshops and clinics at universities throughout the United States. Dr. Bruce Boyd Rabin is a native of New York and is curator of the Hogan Jazz Archive at Tulane University. His exposure to music also began very early in life, as he was the son of big band leader Boyd Rabin and jazz vocalist Jeannie Powell. Later on as a teenager, he would appear on the American Bandstand. Bruce has published extensively on jazz in journals and volumes of collected essays. He is a regular participant at conferences on topics concerning early New Orleans jazz and jazz historiography. He regularly serves as a consultant to numerous media projects, his most recent one being Ken Burns' Jazz. In his spare time, he works as a drummer in New Orleans. The collection owes a debt of gratitude to both Barry and Bruce. In the nine years since we acquired the Russell Collection, they have always been willing to generously share their experience and time with us as we labor to make the Russell Collection available to the public. Thank you. Okay.
Didn't he say that well? <laughs> oh, gracious. All right. Now, I think this little contraption is working, but uh, you don't mind if I sit down, do you? Bruce, you. I'm occupying the podium because it's feeding to the camera, and we're documenting tonight's proceedings. So we're going to have a little repartee uh, this way. Usually we sit together, but I think we can work with this effectively as well. But if you get tied up in the woods, come Right, we'll, we'll trade off. So, welcome, everybody. We're glad you came. Glad so many of you came. I know a lot of you, a lot of you I don't know. Uh, we're here to talk about New Orleans drumming. Uh, I guess I know a bit about it. Uh, the one thing I do know, the people that I'm supposed to talk about, I did know them. Of the four people on that list, which is uh, Baby Dodds, Josiah Frazier, Sammy Penn, and Alfred Williams, three of them I knew and one I recorded with. So I can talk at length about them. But Baby Dodds, uh, well, I guess he's, what would you say, Bruce, the grandfather of New Orleans drumming, probably? He really seems to be the kind of wellspring from which so much emanated. And uh, most people who are interested in traditional New Orleans-style drumming, he's the first one they want to talk about. Uh, of course, Bill Russell documented him uh, on film, and Barry and I spent many hours trying to synchronize a tape that had Baby Dodds playing on it with the film. And I, I think, uh, to his credit... Uh, Barry was able to uh, make that almost work, and where it didn't work, he was able to uh, fill it in a little bit uh, as well. And, of course, that's uh, available, too, that uh, Baby Dodd's film with some other drummers, Milford Doliol and I think Saeed, uh, are available on that video from uh, the George Buck Foundation, which, if you're interested in New Orleans drumming, I mean, I hate to start out with uh, product placement, but this is an important piece of uh, documentation when it comes to New Orleans drumming style. And Barry Martin was the man to put that together. I know when I finished that film, I felt like I'd given birth to a baby. <laughs> oh, that was a long film to do. But anyway, uh, the most famous of the New Orleans drummers was obviously Baby Dodds. Uh, and I guess the ones that uh, came to... Fame after that would be Paul Barbrand, uh, let me see, uh, Minor Hole, Zudi Singleton. We mustn't forget Zudi. Zudi was a good friend of mine. He was married to uh, Marge Kreft, the sister of Charlie Kreft, and they lived up in the Woodward Hotel in New York. And I'll tell you a story about Zudi. I don't think I ever told you this. We don't work to any script, Bruce and I, you see, as you can figure out. When I first came to the United States from London, uh, I, I uh, called Zudi and I said, uh, Mr. Singleton, my name's Barry Martin. I'm a drummer. I came from uh, London. And Zudi, well, wait, does anybody, who knows who Zudi Singleton is? Let me see. Oh, great. Fantastic. All right. So. <laughs> You've seen stormy weather. You know who Zudi is. That's right. Yeah, when Fastballer says, whip it on him, Zudi, and he goes into his elect, and boy, it's something. But anyway, I called Zudi up and said, Mr. Singleton, my name is blah, blah, blah. And he said, well, come on over, man. So I said, uh, wait, wait, I think you got me mistaken. I said, I don't think you know me. And he said, how am I going to know if you don't come on over? <laughs> and uh, I literally walked into the man's apartment. And he said, you see it is? He went to his front door, which was there. 
and woke up his whole way and said, look, you see this picture here? This one when we made West End Blues with Lewis and, and Earl Hines and Nancy Carr and them, you know. And then another one was when he was with Carol Dickerson and all this. And he gave you a walking history lesson before you even sat down to have your, I mean, your tea. And, uh, you know, he, he was a fantastic friendly person. And coming from London, I have to tell you, the musicians I met there, not to mention any names, but many, many of them, it took forever to get to talk to them. And here's a guy that's a jazz legend that embraces you, welcomes you in, you know, him and his wife. And we sat there for four or five hours talking about drums and old drummers and stuff, you know. You, uh, uh, you heard Zudi. There's a great story about Zudi related to what's called a hemi-demi-semi-quaver. Does anybody know what that is? Yeah, I do. 64th notes. And Zudi said that the way you know you are succeeding with a hemi-demi-semi-quaver is if you can make it sound like ripping a piece of paper that even. And Zudi was able to pull that off. He was one of the great New Orleans-style drummers. Yeah, he was. Uh, in fact, let me see. I should have brought a cowbell with me and a wood block, but... See, I don't use a whole lot of drums. I just came back from, from Europe, and I did seven and a half weeks of one-nighters over there. And an Italian man came and said, Mr. Martin, that is your traveling drums. I said, yeah. And he said, what do you, do you use when you are in New Orleans? I said, the same thing. <laughs> and I don't, I don't use that much. It's this and this. Uh, that's all there is. But Zudi, he would like play the melody along when he would play a solo. Like if he was playing the Sheik of Araby, he would play the... And all that. And he'd go all in And he had a thousand blocks. And all that kind of stuff. And uh, he was a... Uh, I guess, let me, let me say this, what I know about this. It, when, when you got from, he was in New York. He's a New Orleans drummer living in New York. When I came down here, it was very different. The, uh, you could not find a bad drummer playing New Orleans jazz at that time. There wasn't any, you know. They all, I mean, I'm talking Joe Watkins, uh, Albert Giles, Sammy Penn, Alfred Williams, uh, all the list goes on and on and on, ad infinitum. But the one thing that uh, I noticed, well, let me let me say one thing here. If you take, we, we did this uh, a little while ago, didn't we? If you take American Indian music, it's based on uh, the accent of the first beat of... Jazz is, is the, uh, the eighth quarter note. In other words, everything comes on that. And uh, if you if you make straight timekeeping in any kind of music, any kind of jazz, is what one of the people that we have to talk about, Alfred Williams, was I'd say the best duelist drummer that I ever heard, including my drum professor. And my drum professor was Saeed Frazier. Saeed, yeah. But Alfred Williams didn't do a darn thing except keep time like that. One brush, 
once did. And it might not seem a lot, but to uh, another instrument blowing a horn or a songster or clarinet player, that's exactly what you want. That's just straight keeping the time. And if you took that, I would say Albert Williams was probably uh, the, the Joe Jones of New Orleans. Well, his nickname was The Clock, That's right. which will give you an idea. In other words, that absolute consistency. What you want from a New Orleans drummer is not a lot of notes or a lot of busyness. What you want is dependability, predictability with a little surprise built into it. And this is why you don't need a big drum set, because you're working on the basics at all time, playing for the band. That's the New Orleans style of playing, not riding the cymbal so much as working the bass drum and the snare drum, and then having a cymbal around to do that accent that Barry was talking about, just to shake things up a little bit. You see, like, in other words, if you took a straight timekeeper like Alfred Williams, but don't get me wrong now, if you listen to records, if you hear Alfred Williams playing on most records, that's all he's doing. And he opens a stop cymbal on the last chord, just to drive it out. But if you hear something like Jim Robinson's band on Riverside, where they're playing the uh, Bugle Boys March, you can hear what Alfred can do. And, and there was a man that was playing with uh, uh, Manuel Perez, all the best bands Alfred played with, but his, his style was so simplistic, it was a shame. But he wouldn't give any lessons. He told me, I don't know nothing about playing drums. I can't teach anything. So, um, but you got the other drummers around here at that time, which I'm talking like, the, let me see, the 61 through 65 or something like that. The other drummers utilize what you call in jazz, well, I don't know if you call it explosions in jazz. You, you call it explosions here, mm -hmm. which means you break off the time. You're playing like that. It's not straight in there is what you call explosions. And the New Orleans drummers excelled at those explosions. They're always in the right place. Alfred Williams didn't do any. My teacher, Josiah Frazier, did plenty. In fact, when I first heard him play, I thought I, I couldn't understand what he was doing because I'd come from all Baby Dodge tutorage. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, doesn't that take you back to some of the things the baby talked about where... Part of the responsibility of the drummer is treating every soloist a little differently, giving them something special, something just for them. And those explosions come in very handy there because what you're trying to do and, and what a lot of drummers forget about, it, and, but this is, very, this is basic in New Orleans-style drumming, is dynamics. In other words, you don't have to play as loud as you can possibly play all the time. In fact, what you want to do is keep things kind of low and kind of simmering so you can bring them up and do explosions occasionally. If you're playing full tilt all the time, there's nowhere to go. Like Jelly Roll said, uh, if the glass is full, you can't put any more water in it. You want to work from a half-full glass, you can always add a little bit, take a little bit out, take a sip. That's absolutely right. But like I say, with, with the drummers here, they varied so much. But there was so much talent from all of them. They're so different. I'm looking back here. Wait a minute. Move my hat. Here's Sammy Penn, who was a... Uh, any one of the drummers we've got to talk about tonight on that list? Uh, we can go anywhere we want to go, Barry. All right, then. Well, he is good enough. And, and here he is again back here. 
Now, he was a, a real old-time drummer that played with uh, Buddy Petit's band, where he came out of. And uh, She from, like, Raceland, Thibodeau, somewhere Morgan around there, City. I think? Yeah, Morgan okay, City, Morgan City. Yeah. I, the only reason I know that, because he got a son. I think he's still living. And I went with his son one time out to Morgan City to visit. I guess it was his mother. I forget. But he was a very kind man. I don't, you can't see this, but when, you get, when we get through, you come up and take a look. Always smiling. And he had a... I smoked cigars. He had a cigar, and he'd always be playing like that. And I never saw him like that cigar. I don't know what he did with him. <laughs> there were, there were. You sure, that wasn't an extra drumstick. Yeah. Well, it was a House of Windsor cigar. It's about the same size as this, but and he would bounce up and down like this when he played. And he was, he was swear he was on some kind of uh, springs, you know. And but he had such a great bass drum beat. Um, Plus, these explosions were sort of phenomenal, you know, very, very unusual. Again, very simplistic, but he had a... I used his drums on a recording I made with Percy Humphrey and Albert Burbanks and them uh, in the year of 1966. And uh, the drum outfit was falling apart down near, and he played it every night. But how he could play, you know... I had to tune the thing up and, and do a lot of work on the snare drum. And he had a big old cymbal. It was heavy as the devil. And uh, I understand a boy in Sweden's got it. Who's from Sweden here? What's the name of that boy that's got the Who? Yeah. Whatever he said. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that boy's got that cymbal. And you can tell it's Sammy Penn's symbol. He would let that thing ring, and, and it would drive a 40-piece orchestra, you know. But uh, Was he playing British drums? Was he playing a set of premieres? No. He had a... He had a in fact, my son is a drummer, too. And he's got Penn's uh, snare drum. It's a Black Beauty. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. Black Ludwig. Beauty is, is uh, one of the most um, valued of any kind of drums, I would say. It was made back in the 20s uh, by the Ludwig Company, and it sounds fantastic. Yeah. Rock and roll drummers rent them from people. You know, rock and roll drummers literally rent these things because they sound so good. And that's what he played. He had a big old Slingerland bass drum. Most of the drummers had a, a big bass drum. I had one, too. Um, in fact, where was that? It was, it was somewhere. It was displayed a little while ago, somewhere around here. Uh, Where's Alfred Lemon? Alfred, where did you... Yeah, in the Royal Orleans garage, but it was in a glass case in the oh. garage. It sounds terrible. <laughs> it was in a glass case and stuff. And the, the reason I'm telling you that, because it was exactly the same model as Baby Dodge used with the Oliver Band. Okay. Single tension, big old drum like that. And it got... Now, I got tired of buying big automobiles, so I had to get a little drum. Yeah. And, and uh, but it had a, such a tone to it. And most all those drummers around here used those big old bass drums. They didn't have anything much this small, you know. But uh, I've got a question for you, Barry. Yeah. And this one I've never really uh, thrown at you before. But when you were growing up, I mean, what was happening in a lot of jazz? Where most of the the drum heroes were people like Kenny Clark and, and Max Roach and guys that were doing modern jazz. What was it that got your attention when it came to these traditional New Orleans drummers? Because in a way, you kind of like separated out from the pack there in your attraction to New Orleans drumming style. Oh, very much so, yeah. There wasn't anybody that was doing what I was doing. Uh, uh, 
even the English traditional ones, they had some guys in England that were playing what they called traditional drumming, but they were copying mostly baby dogs. Mm -hmm. And what got me uh, more interested, I heard baby dogs speak before I heard him play. And if uh, you people heard those baby dogs talking records, mm -hmm. we issued them on American music. Yeah. If you want to learn anything about playing drums, wait a minute, let me change seats. This is a much more comfortable chair. If you want to learn anything about playing drums, any kind of drums, play those baby dog records and listen to what he says. But the only thing was, sometimes he didn't practice what he preached, mm. you know. Sometimes he played more than he told you to play. But by listening to those records, I went a different path to a lot of my contemporaries. And I came here, you know. And when I came here, this was a revelation. In, in I've never heard any kind of drumming like this. Um. The first band I ever saw was the Kid Thomas Band. And they were, Riverside Records came down here to record them. And they had an audition. Would you imagine an audition for a band that's been operating for 40 years? It was an out-of-town company. Yeah. yeah, it was uh, uh, Bill Grower and, uh, oh, I forget his partner's name. What was his partner's name? Um, Keep News? Yeah. They had the or in Keep News. Company. So they came down here and they, Larry Bornstein, who was a local art dealer, some of you might have even known. Preservation Hall. Yeah, right. He had this big old place, was, he called it the Royal Garden. It was on Ursuline and Royal. And it was a great big old building. And uh, the Kid Thomas Band went, came there. And uh, Bill Russell and myself and oh, two or three, the jazz people that were in town then, Mike Slatter, Ralph Collins, we went there to watch this audition. And in came Kid Thomas and his band, more or less at one time, within 10 minutes of one another. And it seemed to me they must have took an hour to set that stuff up. I mean, fooling around with mutes and... You know, slow, slow, slow with the trombone and setting the drums up took an hour and, and all this. And I'm sitting there waiting for something to happen. I'm just sitting there looking. And uh, and all of a sudden, Thomas didn't tell him anything. He just... And I've never heard any music like that in my life. I mean, never, never told the musicians what key they're going to play and what song they're going to play. Just... Right away. Not even the count, just stomping off, yeah. Yes. That's one thing I'll tell you as a drum player, you're an accomplished, uh, and you work with a lot of, well, I work with a lot of, I was lucky in life. Um, incidentally, I've got to tell you this, I wasn't um, Nijinsky's milkman. Obviously, I delivered his fruit to him. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I was a little boy, but... Uh, I still have a, a stamp he gave me. If only he had signed it, it would have been worth millions. But, uh, but anyhow, so when I, I came here, I worked with a lot of musicians. Um, it was a little hard, I've got to tell you that. Segregation was in effect then. You know, it wasn't no easy thing to be skirting around, you know. But nevertheless. Uh, and most of the bands that you sat in with, the first band I played with, I don't think I told you this even, was Paul Barberin's band. Oh. And Paul was such a nice guy. You people know Paul Barberin? Yeah. Probably? Okay. And Paul... Relief drummer. Yeah, he brought you in to, like, back him up when he felt like taking a little break or something? He, 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 he'd tell you... Well, wait a minute, I'm going to take him. Okay. Get back that relief drummer. Yeah. I've got something for him in the band. But Paul said, come on, come and play. 
And I was, what was I, 18, I guess. And, uh, and I wasn't nervous. I've never been a nervous type. But I was a little apprehensive, shall we say. Because the band was Kid Howard, Lewis Cottrell, Frog Joseph, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. So I, Paul sat me down at these drums, and uh, I played. And where I came from, you made four beats on the bass drum all the time. And as soon as I started a number, Kid Howard turned and said, play two beats. <laughs> Frog Joe said, God damn it, play two beats on that drum. <laughs> I don't know where I was, but anyway, it didn't unnerve me that much, but I, I learned then Paul came afterwards, and he was so nice, not in front of the people, because, you know, the, a young musician can get embarrassed very easily, you know, but he said, look, he didn't call me son. He said, look, my boy, he said, you've got to play two beats on that bass drum instead of four. And that's the that's the local Dixieland style that we play here. And from that day forth, I always did that. So those New Orleans drummers, they want some space, basically. The thing about New Orleans jazz is that you don't try to fill everything up. You try to create opportunities with open space to, like, not do things or to do things in surprising ways so that it's not jammed too packed. Uh, too busy, in other words. They like to let things breathe a little bit. A New Orleans timekeeper has got to learn to do that. Keep it simple. That's right. And uh, I was telling you about, oh, yeah, I was telling you about, what was that word you used? Uh, Relief drummer. Relief drummer, yeah. So uh, I, I, uh, I just go to Alfred Williams. Uh, I go to see John Casimir's Young Tuxedo Brass Band, which was a fantastic brass band. John Casimir was an E-flat clarinet player. And you could know that man and that band was coming. The Erika band was a great band, but I used to like the Tuxedo band because of John. He was like Wooden Joe. He did things with tone that you wouldn't believe. And he played on funeral marches. He, he, he'd play like this. And, and his whole body would, you know. And uh, he wasn't a tall man, but you could hear him coming blocks down the street. Before you heard the band, you hear John playing his clarinet. And I used to go and watch that band as much as I could. They played funerals then, proper funerals, not like now where they call them jazz funerals and sell tickets on a bus, not that. <laughs> this was proper dignified funerals, you know. They weren't called jazz funerals, they just called funerals. And I, I used to go see John play with his band, and Alfred Williams, that snare drum player, he'd say, Come on, boy, look, put this drum on. He said, let me show you. He put it on, and put it on you like this, strap it on you. And he said, oh, I love the way you play. You've got such a great beat, you know. And I said, I know what he's fixing to do. Uh -huh. And sure enough, I played a whole damn parade with him. That's and a I'd heavy get, drum. Oh, I'd get back to, and to where we started, and Alfred would be fast asleep in the car. <laughs> <laughs> and, he, and he said... Man, did you play good. Boy, I could hear that beat coming, but he had that hand out when Jonah played off. Yeah. Oh, boy. Well, let's pursue that a little bit, because uh, you're talking about when you first got here, your first experience was really in a dance band situation. Yeah. But, of course, New Orleans drummers are dual purpose, because you don't just play in dance bands. You also play in brass bands in the streets. Uh, What's the difference for you? How do you negotiate that transition? Because it really is a different approach, isn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's a sure different approach. Uh, First of all, what's your preference? If, if you're working in a brass band, do you want to do the bass drum or do you want to do snare drum? Bass drum, because I'm better at it. But, uh, but there's a role 
the snare drum player, if you're listening to Baby Dodds again, go back to those talking records, and if you ain't got them, get them and play them. Even if you don't like jazz, you learn a lot from those. Baby is saying the snare drum player doesn't ever take down. And that's something that, when I went away from New Orleans, when I came back here, I came back here, let me see, 80, 82, 4, something like that. I noticed none of the drummers were doing that. Years ago, let me get back here again. I'm sorry to turn my back on you, but there's no other way to do it. The drummers would march the band all the time. Just like they do in the army. When they finished playing the song, they would march the band. All right, well, now, when you, when you play a funeral, a lot of snare drum players now don't even know how to do this. But I learned it from old timers, and I kept it in my repertoire. Uh, if you play a funeral, you know, you march in the band, and people think the band, you've seen the pictures of, of bands when they play funerals, they march one, and two, and Slow dirge. and like that. Well, the drum, it, people think that the, the band walks like that. The band walks just like soldiers walking. They walk at that speed. But when they come to play, they drum, they've got to cut the speed down. So they make... See, and another thing, you, in the brass band, I don't know if you know this, you've got to keep that left on the where it comes. It's just like the army. And you're left. You're left. You had a good home, but you left. See, you left. And uh, so years ago, the brass bands would all be on marching like that. And then the drum player, it wouldn't be me because I I'd, I'd took a while to learn it. The drum player would slow that beat down. So then they'd hit. Then you da 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 da, and whatever the funeral march would be. The drummers don't do that now. They just play when the band's playing. And so, it's kind of a lost art, I guess, you know. Well, lots changed in the brass band world. I mean, the, uh, the desire to sort of get right into the jazz and the free expression on brass bands has kind of taken over in many cases. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, we got a brass band, a society brass band, and uh, we try to play the old way with that, you know, because I bring music out for me to play. There are very few bands around here play with music. Uh, that's another lost art. See, the old New Orleans brass bands used to play six eights, uh, funeral marches, whatever the occasion demanded. But now they, uh, I doubt many of them could play even a six eight march. Mm -hmm. No, they're, they're like four all the time. Yeah, four yeah. all the time. But look, we ought to ask anybody. Anybody got any questions they want to ask us? Or? Yeah, we can we can work with that. Six eight. Well, you know how a waltz goes, one, two, three, one, two, three, it's a double up of one, two, three, one, two, three, da, 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 ba, 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 like that. Is Maryland in 6-8? Do you do that in 6-8? No, that's in 4-4. Okay. Cut time, but, but, didn't he ramble? Well, you can play. Okay. Just think of a song everybody would know that's from New Orleans. Two lanes went. Da 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 da. Let me get to the drums. <laughs> I'm glad I bought these drums. <laughs> now, you see, 
Stomping around behind them. He's such fantastic. I mean, there was lots of good good brass band teams in the drum sections, but the drum sections were the one thing. With a brass band, you can take uh, straight musicians and get them to play straight funeral marches, or, or and it sounds pretty, but it don't have that New Orleans beat. Yeah. You've got to get jazz musicians and, and get them to play straight music in the right context to bring out the beauty of those funeral marches. And believe me, there are some beautiful things. Willie Pajot, the old trumpet player, said, it's a known quote, it's, let me see. He said, I'd sooner play a funeral than eat a hot turkey dinner. <laughs> <laughs> That's because he loved that music, you know. And um, nowadays, we very seldom get a chance to play funerals and, and uh, with our band, you know, but uh, we do. Anybody else got any questions? Well, there's a lot of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, could you repeat the question? He, he wanted yeah, to let me, in fact, uh, I'll do that for you, Barry. Uh, he's wondering about the brass band setting, the kind of polyrhythms or cross rhythms uh, that Barry was just demonstrating. I'd like you to comment about that a little bit. Well, uh, let me see here. That's the best way to tell you. You see, my bass drum playing, you think bass drum playing, there's no style to it, but everybody's got their style. My style of playing is different from anybody else's, but it's basically the New Orleans beat. But you take, um, wait a minute, let me see if I can show you something here. I'll keep talking so you don't get bored, because there's nothing worse than watching a man disassemble his drum set for entertainment. <laughs> well, I guess there is something worse than that, but I can't think what it would be. I'll show you something. Ah, you stay there, you boys. Be good. <clears throat> now then, if we fit this up on here, I don't know why I had this thing made like this. It wasn't for these occasions, but it might just work. I think it will. Now you're cooking, Jack. All right, let's see. Just wants that upbeat on that cymbal to go with the bass drum. Yeah. You see, when you play bass drum in a brass band where you've got the cymbal here and you... People tell you you have a coat hanger. That's nonsense. You're a coat hanger. You wouldn't hear a coat hanger more than a half a block. You've got to get a ring of steel and bend it. 
and then put it in the handle so it makes this ring. This is ringing too much. But the, 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 the so you got the two hands. See, and when you come down on that beat, uh, the trumpet player, ta da ta da lets you know you're getting ready to play. And then the snare drum might... kind of explosions you make on that drum some bands don't like that and they'll tell you don't be making all that stuff on that drum and some bands love it you know uh, but the drummer the legendary drummer Black Benny they say he could make the bass drum talk whatever that meant and uh, but then there was another guy called little Jim Mukes he was a student of Black Benny's wasn't yes, he, he was, yeah and he uh, if you ever see that film I made a couple of films somewhere along the line. One of them's called Sing On, which is a, a history of, what's it called? That brass one? bands, yeah. yeah it's got some wonderful brass bands in there, yeah. including what he's talking about. It's 1929 Zulu Parade, Mardi Gras Day, with what we think is the Eureka. Uh, Lionel Fairboss and Harold Dejan came in. Uh, Barry brought him in to the archive, and we sat down with his film. We said can you pick out some of those voices? And, and they were pretty sure they knew who was in there. So we think it's the Eureka Band, which was formed in 1920. So this is the Eureka Band pretty much in its infancy with little Jim Mukes on bass drum. But that, that um, accent after yeah. the second measure, that's a New Orleans thing all the way. Yeah. You can subtract other notes, but you're going to want to have that accent in there, that boom, 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 ba-boom, ba. That thing's got to be there. Because the other musicians are depending on that. They're going to use that to that. punctuate. That's what gives it the feeling. Sometimes, if we play a, a reasonably extended parade, like, well, they don't play them like, like man, I used to play sometimes a wolf track and things like that over the river. This parade's going about eight hours. But they're mostly short now, as long as I played now. We played the Mandeville uh, Mardi Gras parade over there, and that was about three hours, that's about mm -hmm. the longest. But sometimes when I would get tired on a parade, I would just, just hit that eighth note on that bass drum, and that's all I would hit. <laughs> play that what you were just playing. Uh, wait, 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 wait a minute. Yeah, look, come play it on here. No, we ain't got but two sticks. I'll do a one stick. All right. You play it. I would just, I would just play that, that one beat there. Uh, because I was tired, I'd been I'd been walking around for you know, and uh, people would. Uh, you get paid more per note when you do it that way. <laughs> but uh, you know, you don't really get tired playing this kind of music. Uh, Bunk Johnson once said, "You don't get tired playing the music is when you take the intermissions." Yeah. You know, I used to work over at Molly's to the market. Any of you people ever came and saw us play over there? Oh yeah. Good grief. Look at that. Wow. And I used to play there. It was like five hours job or six hours, one of the two. Eleven to five. Six hours. And I didn't take an intermission. They just keep on playing. Because uh, the policy was we had to play. There was two of us, clarinet player and myself. And they hired us to play and then sitters in would come. You never came there. You didn't. Mm. But the sitters in Before would include time. everything. Dog acts, yodelers. Uh, <laughs> everything in the world, man. 
And we've smiled and played with them, you know. But uh, the long jobs in New Orleans, they're long since gone, you know. Yeah. But those eight-hour jobs, when you look at posters of events like at Economy Hall, Lekite Hall, Friends of Me and all that, uh, 1909, 1910, 1912, 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. And we talk in July. That's a hard gig for a drummer. But in New Orleans, they were used to that because they're probably working with the brass band for a few hours before they even showed up for that night gig. What would you say? Uh, bass drum on the streetcar, yeah. Yeah, that's right. the drummer, Eric Bigard, who was Bonnie Bigard's brother, and uh, he was a very big influence on me. Uh, and he, he said, when you get in a dance band, it was, they called it brass bands or dance bands. It was nothing about marching bands and whatever they call it nowadays. I don't know. It was just dance band. And wherever you played, if you were sitting down, was a dance band. Wherever you played, if you were walking along, was a brass band. And Eric said, when you get in a brass band, he said, you you got to beat like hell on the first course and hit like holy hell on the last course. And what you do in between don't make much difference. Uh, <laughs> and, and he was really serious about that. But, but he had such a weird style. Uh, he, he uh, I, I can't very easily demonstrate this if I'm not playing with a band, but I use some of his licks now. Uh, it's a weird kind of style. He'd make explosions and you'd always think he was going to get lost. And he wouldn't come out of it. But every time he came out of it, uh, get back on that one again. Eric would, um, when, when he, I never heard him playing the brass band. So I don't know the answer to that question as far as he's concerned. But Saeed, my professor, he, um, he would uh, uh, not make a, a whole lot of difference if he was in a brass band or a dance band. It was mostly, um, but the dynamics, some of the drummers didn't have too much in the way of dynamics. Some of them did. If I play with a band, I, I make them come down soft. I'm a pretty loud drummer. Now, there's a difference between loud and noisy. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants a noisy drummer, you know. They're too much. But loud drummers, man, Sammy Penn back here. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, when you heard that whole Kid Thomas band play, and I haven't lost your question, I'm sidetracking a bit. When you, uh, when you heard that Kid Thomas band play, if you sat in and played with him, you could hardly hear yourself play the drums. The band was so loud. And yet, sitting where you people are sitting, it wasn't loud at all. It was, it's like theater people when they're on the stage. Uh, what's that boy's name? Uh, Lawrence Olivia and all them. When they're talking, they're hollering at the top of their voice to get to the back row, but they sound like they're just talking just like you and I are here today, you see? But they're actually, they're hollering. And that was the thing 
with the Kid Thomas band. When I first sat in and played with them, I could not hear myself play the drums. And I said, Jesus Christ, what next? But it all worked out. It all came across. It was very balanced for the people, you know. But you have to, when I play with a band, I try and make the dynamics on the drums. And that's something I learned from Saeed. He said, they won't come down unless you bring them down. So when I'm playing a, 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 a session or whatever you call it, somewhere in there, I come down. And then I come down even further. Best example of any of that is Kid Ori's band. Listen to Ori's band, man. When, uh, when we had our little band, The Legends of Jazz, uh, there was half of Ori's band. I had uh, Joe Darensburg was in there and uh, Andy Blakeney and Ed Garland. And Blakely used to holler, feet! And when he hollered feet, he, he wanted to hear the dancers' feet on about the music, see? Put some sand on the floor, yeah. get some percussion on it. And, and he would do that a lot. Uh, and uh, I said, where did you get that expression from, Andy? And he said, Joe Oliver. Joe Oliver told us. Dixie Syncopators. Yeah, Joe Oliver would say, feet, feet. And that's all he said. And the band had to come so quiet that you just heard the dancers' feet. A lot of these old tales they make up about New Orleans and the traditions and that, a lot of them are true, you know. I mean, uh, I can't think of one. Well, when it comes to feet, for example, Albert Nicholas tells a good story. He was in uh, the Dixie Syncopators, Joe Oliver's band that Barry's referring to, with Barney Begard. And they used to do a lot of practical jokes on Joe Oliver. And one of them was to do a drawing of an oversized foot and leave it up on the bandstand. So every time he would yell, feet, Oliver was a little self-conscious about the size of his feet. And so the guys in the band were like, draw this. And he would get furious. Who drew that foot? Whose foot is that? So there's, there's, there's some ambiguity in terms of what he meant, but when he said feet as well. But there's something I want to pursue on, uh, with you about something you just said, and which is the power that the drummer has in the New Orleans ensemble. Because to some extent, the drummer is the regulator. And yet exerting that power is not always easy. Because, I mean, say you're dealing with Barney Begard. You're dealing with some personalities up in that front line who, like, know how they want to do things. And yet you still got the responsibility of kind of keeping them in line. Making, making them go where you want them to go because it's the drummer's responsibility to handle the dynamics like that. How do you deal with those situations? Well, I'll tell you, uh, the, the hardest people to deal with in, in my work, and I've been doing what I've been doing for, oh, let me see, I started when I was 14 and 50, no, not 54 years, that made me 70. <laughs> Four, 44 years, I guess, I've been doing it. And I work with a lot of guys, and always the clarinet players with the pain in the ribs. <laughs> always. But probably, probably because uh, they, they had this, I don't know. Do they have the loudest instrument in the band or the quietest? I don't know. I mean, uh, depends on the clarinet player. But uh, uh, all of them were hard on drums. And all of them was hard, you know, uh, not only on me, but I mean, uh, one time I saw George Lewis cussing Sammy Penn out. And Sammy, being the nice, pleasant fellow he was, he didn't care, just laughed and turned his drums <laughs> like this. <laughs> I mean, he was a character, you know. He didn't argue with him, but uh, Saeed argued with him, you know. Uh, 
But you see now, now Albert Nicholas, he didn't want to think from the drummers, but just these here wild brushes. Baby Doug said he invented them. Minor Hole said he invented them. Zooty told me he invented them. I think even Jelly said he invented yeah, them at one point. Yeah. yeah. But Albert Nicholas just wanted that. That's what he wanted. And when you close him out, give him smile chorus. Yeah. Yeah. And yet, uh, George Lewis, he didn't want any woodblocks. He hated that. Even though Baby Doug's played all those. King of the Woodblock. Yeah. He hated that. He couldn't stand that. I actually made one record with George where I played one chorus on the woodblock and snuck it in on him. You know? <laughs> but he liked that cymbal. He wanted you to open up on that cymbal and close on that cymbal. Nice fat sound, yeah. And, and Barney Bigard, he was, uh, he didn't care what you did. He was just happy, you know. He was, uh, but he, Barney, but all of his playing with the, the All-Stars, with Duke Ellington and whatever, he knew what that down-home beat was. He knew instantaneously, you know. And, uh, we had a little trio with him and me and, and uh, Duke Burrell, Alec Burrell. He's a piano player from here. And that was a, a heck of a trio to work with. But Barney, uh, he liked the double beat, which I used to do on the bass. But he liked that for some reason. He said, do that on that drum. And uh, he would like me to put that in. But he was very easy to work with. But as I say, most of the clarinet players, uh, uh, Pain in the ribs. Uh, <laughs> but I'll tell you a funny thing. We were just, I went in, I'm glad I thought of this to go back to it. When I was saying about Kid Thomas would just knock on the floor. That was very unusual for him because Percy Humphrey, of the trumpet players, Percy Humphrey would give you two beats. They, they sat down, people I, I've seen in magazines where people, mostly from Europe, I had to say, they say they can't understand why bands want to sit down and play, especially young men. Why don't they stand up? Well, you ever see a man flying a plane across the Atlantic standing up? <laughs> you make it easy as you can. And plus, it's more relaxed. Endurance, you know, it's yeah. More relaxed. Get and some support. When you stand up for that last course, it's uh, 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 something for the picture, you know? And so, but anyhow... Percy Humphrey, you play with him, and he just give you two beats and straight in. Ba 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 da 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 da. Uh, and uh, uh, George Lewis will give you the time, then he give you, and you start playing. But Kid Thomas, nothing, no key, no song, just start. Just jump in. You know, you had to get in there where you could get in. I mean, and if you couldn't get in. Most musicians, professional musicians, can get in there after a bar, you know. But uh, Thomas would actually come on a job, I've seen this happen, and just start to play a song. And uh, nobody in the band knew the song. They are just scuffling like the devil, all of them. And, and they would say, where did you get that song? And he said, I heard it on the radio today, you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, but that was his way, you know. When you work with those guys... But I'll tell you one thing, I never forgot any of them. I still... Well, there's one I want to make sure we don't forget tonight, uh, and that's a guy that uh, you and Richard Knowles helped to bring back, and his name was Abby Foster, Chinese. Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, he played with uh, Celestan, the original Tuxedo Jazz Orchestra. He played with Buddy Petit uh, in the 1920s. He was a very busy drummer in New Orleans. 
But there was something he learned how to do in the Iroquois Theater over on South Rampart Street that we haven't gotten into tonight, but it is part of New Orleans drumming, and that is singing the snares. Have you ever tried that? Yeah. Sammy Penn used to do that all the time. He said, I can't do this front way. Don't have to turn my back on you. There's a lot of old tricks that the old drummers used to use. Mostly lost today. Some of them. Some of them would, would sing like this. And it, they thought it would amplify it. But people were, it was a picture. People would look and say, what the devil is he doing? <laughs> Singing like that across to the audience. Abby Foster, Chinese, Bebe, he used to do that. Sammy Penn did that. And, uh, and a number of, of things, like another thing all the old timers used to do in the trio of high society, they'd all play... Um, all that. It's nothing but chicanery, I guess, or whatever you want to term it. Sounds pretty good, though. Um, but listen, uh, is everybody having a good time? Yes. Look here. Wait, wait a minute. I got to Bruce. You, you stole them for a minute. I, I think I left my lights on. <laughs> well, with Barry, there's always going to be a few surprises. But since he is out of earshot, let me simply say that this is one of the most beautiful things about the New Orleans drumming tradition is that you don't have to be from New Orleans to play an important role in it. Barry is someone who fell in love with what New Orleans drummers do when he was a very young man. He was a teenager, and he made the pilgrimage to New Orleans, and because of the spirit that he brought with him, he earned the friendship of many of these older drummers that we've been talking about. And uh, he is now part of that chain, part of the continuity that is New Orleans drumming. We have some other uh, New Orleans drummers uh, in the house tonight, like Bobby McIntyre. Uh, New Orleans drummers are a special breed. Uh, it's not just because of the way they think and play, but it's it's just the way that rhythm matters in their existence. I think uh, uh, New Orleans people know a New Orleans drummer when they hear them. But like I said, you don't have to be from New Orleans to qualify. In fact, having said that, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Barry Martin, because he is a New Orleans treasure. <laughs> But I'll tell you one thing, when I uh, uh, play music, I always make sure I never say I'm a New Orleans drummer. I say I'm a New Orleans style drummer. And I always, all my life, got angry with people if they put New Orleans drummer, because I'm not from here, you know. Uh, you'd never tell from my accent, would you? <laughs> but, I, I, uh, but I learned everything, and still do. Learned everything I could from these drummers, because the world won't see the lack of them again, you know. Uh, they were unbelievable. The power, the beat, the feeling. If you say, how does a man get feeling out of drums, you know? Well, just listen to the good ones and you'll know. Uh, but it, it's an idiom that uh, I, I knew reasonably well Louis Belson, the, the drummer. And he lived in Woodland Hills, California, about, let me see, six blocks from my house. <laughs> and... Uh, he, he loved the New Orleans drumming style. And, and, you know, he's a world-famous, you know, 
He's probably the, who's the most famous living drummer now. Well, might be Max Roach or Elvin Jones, but Max started out with uh, New Orleans-style drumming and then evolved into bebop later on. It was happening with his generation. Well, Louis must be way up in the top three. Must yeah, he? Al, absolutely. Yeah, he loved New Orleans drumming, and uh, you see, my son uh, was taking lessons when he came here last time from Johnny Vidakovich. You know Johnny Vidakovich? Absolutely. People, is it he does it all. Drummer? Yeah, you know he does Johnny. it all. I knew his daddy. And what makes it hard is when I have to now tell people I knew his granddaddy. You know. <laughs> but Johnny told my son, he said, look, New Orleans drumming, don't never think above there, you know. It's all to do with that bass drum. Yeah. And that really is the whole, the whole essence of it. You can tell a New Orleans drummer, uh, at least I can, anywhere by the bass drum beat mm -hmm. they're using, you know. Um, but I must say... Uh, uh, Another thing, not to go deeply into this, but I was telling you segregation was uh, enforced when I was here, and that wasn't an easy thing um, to get around and, and, and listen to the people, let alone play with them. Well, you were a member of 496. I mean, when you came here, you had two yeah. options in terms of which union to join. Barry joined the uh, Black Musicians Union, 496, which was established in 1926 in New Orleans. Well, only only because I knew everybody in that local. It was like if someone asked you if you wanted to join a country club and you knew all the people in one country club and knew two people in the other country club, which one would you join? Less the dudes were cheaper. <laughs> but no, uh, I I, uh, I did do that. But um, the point I'm bringing this up about is only in recent times has even jazz. I learned everything of, that I've learned from black musicians. There's no denying that. Practically everything. I'd say 98% of it. And uh, it's a fantastic thing for me to see in this country now that if years ago somebody had told me in this building here that there'd been someone talking about black New Orleans drummers, essentially, you know, it would have said, oh, you're crazy, you're making that up. You know, nobody would come to that. Well, this was a courthouse before, uh, so they you know, might have been different circumstances. But if you look now at this town, you've got the presence of uh, the historical collection, you've got the presence of the, well, that's always been here, I guess. But nevertheless, they, with the Bill Russell collection, they got interested in, in the jazz side and uh, have done a lot to promote my friend Bill uh, many people say they were Bill's friend, but uh, I, uh, Bill was a strange man, uh, and I've heard it said so am I, but we got along very well, and we, because we wanted to do the same things, and we both worked in the same field, but because of the efforts of the collection here, I would say, you see, Bill is, is probably more famous now than when he was alive for his work, you know, which is fantastic. And then the presence of the National Park Service in this town. That's incredible. You can go, any of you people if you're from out of town or locals, you can go twice a week and listen to things in a great broad spectrum. And this is not a commercial, but a great broad spectrum of, of jazz. You know, white, black, modern, uh, uh, you know, whatever it is. And the Park Service puts on all these things. I think we are living in the best times for jazz right now. 
Well, there used to be a complacency about the role of New Orleans in the story of jazz, and uh, the people who made films, wrote books, couldn't wait for Louis Armstrong to get to Chicago in 1922 so they could get on with what they considered to be the main part of the story. What is happening today with the various institutions we're talking about, Historic New Orleans Collection, the Hogan Jazz Archive at Tulane, the Louisiana State Museum and the New Orleans uh, Jazz Collection there, the New Orleans Jazz National Historical Park uh, from the National Park Service is, and Ken Burns' series on jazz, I think, actually assisted with this too. People are beginning to realize that we still have a lot to learn about that early New Orleans period. And this is exactly what Bill Russell devoted his life to, was to show people what an interesting city this is. And not to debate whether or not jazz came from New Orleans with Leonard Fetter, because for him, there was never any doubt about it. The circumstances of this cultural environment explain the emergence of jazz in the United States and, to some extent, the coming together of American culture in the broadest possible sense, as represented by jazz. And so I think that's the legacy that we're dealing with and celebrating today, is that we haven't learned everything yet. And that's why these collections are so important, because there are generations of scholars who are still unborn, who are going to be coming to New Orleans to find out what happened here with that music, the music that they still love? i got to tell you, you mentioned Leonard Feather. Does anybody know Leonard Feather? Yeah. He, is a, uh, he was a very good guy, but he didn't like New Orleans jazz. He didn't like Dixieland jazz, whatever you want to call it, traditional jazz, whatever name you want to there call it. There was no money in it for him. Oh, I would. Uh, uh, well, I, uh, Leonard was a good Sorry, guy. Sorry, couldn't help <laughs> That's it. That's all right. He, well, I don't know where he is, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> But Leonard, uh, I better get off that glass case. Hmm? I don't want to get too close to Sammy Penn and cut myself. Let me sit back down here. Uh, Leonard you, was, you knew uh, Leonard in L.A., right? Yeah, when you were out there? Yeah, I know him. Yeah. Leonard used to come to our house sometimes for dinner and his wife, Jane. And uh, i got to tell you this story. Leonard is a, uh, as I say, a jazz critic. What would you, what would you describe Leonard as a, Jazz critic, uh, potential songwriter, and management person. Yeah. But anyway, he came, he hired us. When I say us, he hired Leonard Bache, which is Sidney Bache's uh, nephew, Alton Purnell, Eddie Garland, and me to play for his class. He was given a class, you know, and uh, selling his books, bless him, as well. Yeah, UCLA or USC? Or? I don't know where it was. Probably UCLA. Okay. And... Uh, he came there, and uh, he said, I don't generally do this. He said, but I'd like to sit in and play with you. So I said, uh, well, all right. And man, Leonard, he couldn't figure that beat out. He just could not figure that beat out on the piano. He, he, he couldn't get it. And Tootie was cussing at him, because Tootie was blind. Mm. You know, he didn't know who he was. He said, play that, play that. I said, play that left hand, boy. Play that left hand. You know? And, and uh, uh, oh man, it was a mess. But it just goes to show you that a guy can be writing about things and it's still not coming out, you know, the right. Well, that's it. You can write it off as a kind of unsophisticated prototype for the development of the art form later on, which is in fact where Leonard Feather was coming from. He liked modern jazz and bebop. But the thing is, in that situation, he realized just because you think it's simple doesn't mean it is simple when you try to play it. Sure wasn't for him.
Anti-cultural movement to what was going on in the in the rock and roll thing. I mean, my when I was young, my contemporaries. In fact, we were talking about that. Mm -hmm. Charlie Watts and Ray Davies and uh, the Kinks and the Rolling Stones and the you know uh, all of those groups. But I never followed that kind of music. It was almost a reaction against it. But the main thing. Don't forget, well, I, I'm telling you, Peggy, don't forget, you probably don't even know this, but when we were young boys in, in London, George Lewis came there. And here's a live New Orleans musician. And I went to see him, let me see, in 1957, it was October. So I was, uh, I was 16. And I went to see him, he played at the Stowe Theater in Kingsway. And they had a band accompanying him, uh, and they came on first, and their clarinet player played. And then on came this little little man, and uh, he had absolutely no personality, show show business personality. Harold Pendleton was a big impresario, and he made this this great long introduction about George. This is the man that played with Bunk Johnson, and he did this, and he did that, and he did the other. And George just idles up to the microphone and says, "Next number, just a little while to stay here." And he's <laughs> I mean, next number, he hadn't played one yet, you know. And, and, uh, and oh, I'm in the peanut gallery because I couldn't afford the, the good tickets. I was young, you know. And I could hear this tone coming up way in the peanut gallery. Could you ever notice this man played? He was such a little, he was half the size of, of the, the last guy who played. And I learned something from that. And uh, I loved it. I, I knew who he was because I'd heard his records, you see. And um, and then the band came back the next year. The whole band with Kid Howard and Jim Robinson and uh, George and, and Joe Robichaux and, and Slow Drag and Joe Watkins. And that convinced me and probably all the other young musicians uh, of those European guys. I'm probably not the oldest one because there were people before me. Uh, Ken Collier and the whole movement of that. Uh, but I didn't pay much attention to that. I was always listening to the New Orleans thing. And that's, but um, the movement that we started, I suppose, all of us in those years, was born of... Then George Lewis went to Sweden. Then he went to Holland. And, and uh, so you heard this firsthand. And it wasn't like any other kind of music you'd ever heard. It was just so... so I can't explain it exactly. I can still hear it. If I lay in bed tonight... Close my eyes and want to reflect on that. I can hear him playing. You know. And it's no surprise that the work of Bill Russell with the American Music Label, which was occurring between 19, well, 44, but he got started recording in 42, coincides with the Second World War, which is when Western culture came very close to sort of snuffing out the whole freedom principle. And during that war, traditional New Orleans jazz represented freedom to uh, lots of oppressed people. And I think there was maybe a legacy of that that was playing in even younger generations who had sort of like missed that catastrophe but came up, still were basking in the glow of 
what that music represented, because it represented freedom, it represented emotion, uh, it represented joy for many people who came very close to having no hope at all. But New Orleans jazz helped get them through all of that. So I, I think, you know, in the broad picture, too, uh, this is, again, a key to, to that, the, the fun that is the essence of New Orleans jazz, because it's not really even an intellectual exercise so much as it's an emotional thing. It's about joy. It's about having a good time. It doesn't have pretensions to being an art form. It's other people who make those claims. The people in New Orleans just want to have a good time. It's a great level up when you come here. Uh, it's like, wasn't it Louis Sullivan, the architect, who said uh, art becomes subservient to function? I think it was Sullivan, whoever it was. Mm -hmm. It's down here, you know, everything is... Forget the art. If they hire you to open a gas station, you better blow loud. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, but the art is in the non-art. It's kind of weird. We... Um, uh, we're opening on your way out with some little um, booklets about the dance hall that's opening here. Uh, it's opening on the 24th. There's a big thing on the 24th for the opening night. If you take, get the booklets, it'll, it'll tell you. Is that uh, the Dewdrop? No, not uh. the Dewdrop, but it's called Michelle's uh, Authentic New Orleans Dance Hall or something. Ah, okay. And, uh, but that's a tradition that uh, I was a part of because I worked two of those dance halls and went to a lot of them. And that was uh, uh, a different thing that's been completely ignored, the dance band scene of, of uh, New Orleans music. Luchens, Moulin Rouge, yeah. It's yeah, the, 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 all the hopes, all the harmony in and all that kind of stuff. You hear some fantastic music there. It was jazz, but it was at danceable tempos. Made you want to get up and dance, you know, which all New Orleans music really does. If it don't make you want to get up and dance, there's something wrong with it. It's like when Bunk went to the Stuyvesant Casino in New York in 1945, and uh, the uh, jazz intellectuals all turned out for this, you know, the great returning hero making his first pilgrimage to uh, New York City, and everyone sat there and was just enthralled, and the guys in the band are going, what are we doing wrong? No one's dancing. Yeah. Uh, the difference in context was, was extreme. Uh, eventually, I think people started catching on, dancing a little bit at Stuyvesant Casino. But in New Orleans, you want that reaction. If the guys in the bandstand playing in July are going to be sweating, well, then you people in the audience, you have to sweat too. You have to get involved. You have to connect. You have to participate because you're all in it together. Yes, sir. Time for another question? Sure. sure. Uh, bass drum, I would say. Mm -hmm. Totally the bass drum. If you hear that record of, have you ever heard that record of uh, uh, Blackwell with, um, what's that little cat's name, played trumpet? Don Cherry. Don Cherry, yeah. You ever heard that? Trump. Straight away, you can tell it's a, a, a New Orleans drama. And he, the funny thing was, he, being Don Cherry, a little while after he made that record, he came to New Orleans. I don't know what he was doing here. 
But he came to uh, where we were playing at the Storyville, and he had these little short pants. You know, like the little kids, you know, the kids that wear bow ties and short mm -hmm. pants, you know, junior minister of commerce and all that kind yeah. of stuff. Well, he came there, and he said, could I see him play with the band? So I said, well, I don't know, can you play? And he said, uh, yeah. I said, well, I guess you can then. Come on up here. And he said, I just got, got uh, we just made a record with a, a New Orleans drummer, you know. He said, I, I love that beat. And I said, who are you? And he said, Don Cherry. I couldn't believe it, <laughs> you know. But he's not from here, you know. I don't know where Don Cherry's from. He's a modern trumpet player, if anybody don't know him. But he wanted to sit in with us, you know. I mean, uh, um, what's his name? The guy that, uh, tenor player. Oh, God, his name's gone out in my head. Sonny Rollins. He was a love Emmanuel Paul's tenor plan. He got all mm. Emmanuel Paul's records, you know. What makes them appreciate this? I don't know, you know. Well, to some extent, I think some of it is that there are, in fact, rhythms and beats that are associated with New Orleans that they don't play elsewhere. And then there's also a way of playing those beats. For a lot of drummers, you know, they want that snare drum really tight and crisp and, you know, no overtone or anything. In New Orleans, it's just the opposite. They loosen those snares, get a ratty, dirty, fat sound. That's a New Orleans drummer. So there are a couple levels in which you can investigate that. And there are guys, uh, for example, you know, you scratch a modern jazz band, you might just find a New Orleans drummer, like uh, Ahmad Jamal, for example, for an El Fournier, who just passed away last November. It's a great loss. Uh, I was doing something at the, uh, the Visitor Center for the Park Service last Friday, and a young man came up to me, and his name was uh, Sidney Montague. And he is the grandson of the drummer, Sidney Montague, who was playing with everybody, played with Lionel Fairboss, played in the Herbert Leary Big Band in the 1930s. Guess who Vernell Fournier's teacher was? Sidney Montague. So here's this modern jazz drummer that everyone thinks of in regard to Ahmad Jamal, but if you look at where he's coming from, he's coming from this New Orleans wellspring, just like Blackwell and, and James Black and the rest of them. They all go in different directions, but they, they take that indoctrination, that sense of place that they have, that, that ear and that feel and, and that sort of jones for, for feeling and putting in a drum, taking like a little pat on a bass drum and making it count. Uh, using those double beats, using those accents. There's an economy to New Orleans drumming. So they're not that effusive, but the thing is they always know what they're doing and they always know where they are in relation to the band because there's an intrinsic, innate sense of time that you could even argue that people here are born with. You know, you watch them walk down the street, you're going to start learning something about New Orleans drumming. That's right. Has anybody got any more questions? I think we're getting ready to... Yes, Art Scully. Oh yeah, yeah, I'm sure. You can hear on the 38 record of um, Rampart Street Parade with the, mm -hmm. you know, sure. I mean, uh, uh, um, there was a, a, a real good drummer. We were talking about the black drummers. They weren't all black, you know. There was a, a very good drummer around here that had an old time beat that I used to like, Al Baden. You ever heard him? Did anybody ever hear of Al Babin? All right. Well, he had a real, and, and uh, he was, I don't know where he was from, Chalmette or someplace, you know. 
And then there was Tony Schreiner, was another uh, white drummer from around here. You know, they all got that new. Mm-hmm. Godfrey Hirsch, who played with Prima. I mean, he, you know, eventually became like a vibes player and, and you know, was very well trained. But he was coming up, you know, out of the Shrine Band with George Paoletti you know, when he was a kid. Uh, so there's a lot of that. And Ray Baduke had mentioned South Rampart Street Parade. The sound of Smokey Mary going up Elysian Fields out to the lake, uh, that's where that song was born. You know, there are a lot of New Orleans sounds, ambient sounds that just exist in this city, whether it's steamboats or, or trains or streetcars or street criers that New Orleans drummers listen to, and they take those feelings and those rhythms and they build them into things. Because uh, Baduk was not just a drummer, he, was also, he wrote some songs. But from a drummer's point of view. A drummer writing songs is, I wrote a couple of songs, uh, about four of them. A drummer writing songs is not really any different from anybody else. Uh, you think of a melody, but then you think of a, a drum band to put mm-hmm. behind it while you're actually yeah. writing a song, which is a weird, weird kind of a thing, you know. You, you write with the... You know, with the feel of, of what you yeah, know. Different foundation. Yeah. 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 Anybody got more questions? Yes. Speaking of drums, I always heard that uh, Chick Webb, whenever they have uh, battle with the bands, he would cut them off. I think, I think so. What do you think your relationship was about Chick Webb? Technique mostly and beat, just solid beat coming at you, you know. I uh, I bought Chick Webb's drums uh, from Jesse Price, who was an old Kansas City drummer, from his widow, Miss B. And uh, the weird drums, they, they had uh, like timpani tuning on all of the tom-toms and everything, top, top tuning. Really? Yeah. And little as he was, Chick Webb, I don't know if, I guess everybody knows, he was a little uh, crippled guy. He was a little, I don't know, he's four foot two, I think, you know. Uh-huh. But he's a man. I mean, he was a lot of power, a yeah. lot of drive and power in that man. I mean, people don't get a reputation playing drums for nothing. They really don't. I mean, you take about Gene Krupa, uh, whoever you talk about. You know, Buddy Rich. You know. Yeah, yeah, they know what's going on, you know. But the one thing is, with the New Orleans drummers, I was lucky. I came... Uh, at the right time for me, of course. I miss Baby Dodds. Baby Dodds had died in 1958, I believe. And I came here in 1960. And so I'd miss Baby Dodds. I'd miss uh, Minor Hall. He died in, I think, 59, November 59, mm-hmm. I think it was. But I caught Zooty, and I caught... The, the New Orleans drummers that we're talking about that we're supposed to have been talking about. We kind of went around different things here tonight. But, oh, didn't we ramble? Yeah, <laughs> didn't we? But uh, the ones we're supposed to be talking about, none of them had achieved even national fame, let alone international fame. I could go, I've just come from seven and a half weeks in Italy and Belgium and Holland. I heard two or three Sammy Pens, uh, a couple of Sally Frasers, you know what I mean? And uh, nobody had heard of them. I mean, my drum teacher, Saeed Fraser, was a, an excellent musician. He could have sat in and played with the New Orleans Symphony Orchestra. Wouldn't matter. He was a good reader and all of that. And uh, But he'd only made, that was issued, I think one record, which was the American Music, oh, two, the Wooden Joe American Music mm-hmm. and the Billions of D American Music. Imagine that. 
Only made two records mm -hmm. that were issued, you know. 504 wasn't even going then. Oh, yeah, there's thousands of records now he's made, but I'm talking about that, were, that I could listen to before I... When you first came in. When I first yeah. came here. There was only those two records that, uh, that I honestly know about, you know. Uh, but they got to be household men. That's right. Yeah, it's jam up and when I'm with you, dear. Mm-hmm. you got a good memory. Yeah. <laughs> But George Wetland was considered a cricket drummer in the Chicago side. If we exclude Dave Tuck, yeah. yeah, Dave had his own category. Yeah. Dave had his own category. Yeah. Yeah. This, well, could you uh, differentiate the Chicago style drumming and Wetland from the New Orleans Mostly, very easily, because the New Orleans drumming had more of, 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 of this. New Orleans drumming had more of this, and the Chicago drumming had more of the top. That's a very easy one, I think. Uh, the New Orleans drumming is built on that bass drum. And George Wetland, I heard George play many times, he did not have that New Orleans beat. He wouldn't have ever claimed to have had it, but he was a hell of a drummer, sure. Mm -hmm. But not, would he have fitted into a New Orleans band? I don't know. The other ones would have probably made him put him in, you know. And we're not claiming that New Orleans drummers have a hold a monopoly on great jazz drumming because obviously this is like a spectrum which really covers a lot of ground. But what we really are emphasizing is that there is something special about the drummers that come from New Orleans. On that note, I think we're going to wrap things up, but... We have a request, Mr. Martin, yes. and that is that you finish up the night playing something, and I would request that you play and sing a little bit for us, if you would. Play and sing? Oh, Lord. You think we can coax them? I'll tell you what, I'd sooner sing than play. Okay. <laughs> but you, you, uh, you, you can help me here. Anybody got a pitch pipe so I'll be in the key of F? We, we'll sing a song together. I'm gonna lay down my burden down by the riverside. Come on up, down by the riverside. Down, down by the riverside. I'm gonna lay down my burden down by the riverside and study. War no more. I ain't gonna study one more in the morning. Ain't gonna study one more. Ain't gonna study one no more. Study one more. Study one. And to each and every one of you people, we're sorry we kept you here so long. We were enjoying ourselves immensely, and most of you 
There was only a couple of people who had to leave, and don't think we ain't got their names. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we thank you. We wish you a very good night. Yeah, boy. That <laughs> yeah, was good, Bruce. And folks enjoyed it, man. Huh? Yeah, they enjoyed it. Yeah.